0: But hopefully get back on track here real soon as life settles down. and a little more time to work on that scheduling. Uh, In the meantime, uh, we are joined by Dr. Doug Cummings. He is a board-certified general surgeon, currently practicing in Plainview, Texas. We'll talk about that. And he did his training in general surgery at Kalamazoo, Michigan, uh, which at the time was Michigan State University affiliated. He did his medical school at Texas Tech University Medical School, and. undergrad at Texas A&M. So without further ado, Dr. Cummings, thank you very much for joining us, hello. Hi, Chris, good to see you. So uh, it's been a while, let's see, last time we saw each other in person, was that was that Vegas?
1: It was at the um, MISS conference in Vegas, which uh, three years ago, maybe four.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, that was good. It wasn't the, they did two in a row that year. This is uh, talking about, there was, a an event that was, uh, sponsored by industry where we kind of all talked about minimum invasive reflux and, um, Dr. Cummings was there. And did you go to the first one or just the second one?
1: I, I went to
0: both of them. I went. I went- yeah. So the first one was great. Uh, and the second one got a little more abbreviated and they had more, uh, almost too much structure. Honestly, I thought, I thought anyway. Um, but yeah, so Dr. Dr. Cummings, he practices in Plainview, Texas. And for those of you that don't know, uh, Plainview is not quite halfway, but almost halfway between Amarillo and Lubbock. And, Texas, And for those of you that don't know where those are, uh, the panhandle of Texas is kind of that part that sticks up in between Oklahoma and New Mexico. And Lubbock kind of sits at the bottom of that. And Amarillo is kind of sort of in the middle. So Plainview is kind of in between those two. Town of about 30,000?
1: 22,000.
0: 22.
1: Not too yeah, far off. We, for, for 100 years, the population of Plainview has hovered between 20 and
0: 25,000. Wow. But, um, so what, what is the main industry in Plainview? I... Uh,
1: cotton farming. Yeah. So pretty much like most of the panhandle, um, far, farming is, uh, the prime industry. Um, we have a small college Wayland Baptist university and, uh, then, the Walmart distribution center is another uh, major employer
0: for sure. For sure. Uh, and again, for the, for the audience, uh, most of the denim made in the, in the world, it comes from, uh, that part of the country right around there. That, that cotton's pretty good for denim if I remember correctly from, from business school anyway. Right. <laughs>
1: yeah. You're correct.
0: Yeah. So the, the t-shirt cotton usually comes, I think that's, is that the Egyptian or something? I don't remember, but anyway. Um, so, uh, Dr. Cummings also performs the TIF procedure, which we've talked about on the show, a minimally invasive approach uh, to reflux, which is a really, really cool thing. And you are still doing those, correct?
1: I still do the TIF, but I'm, I'm not as active as I was last time you and I oh. saw each other at that meeting in Vegas.
0: Now, did you get uh, just busy with general surgery or did you have a change of... I mean, just change of change of opinion about it or
1: probably a change of opinion. Um, I, you know, the, the question was, and I think still is tossed around, what's the proper place for TIF. And, and so there's a raging debate still about the, the combined procedure doing a Heidel hernia repair and then doing a TIF at the same time or at the same setting rather.
0: For sure. Right. Um,
1: and so I, I personally, I backed away from doing that combined procedure uh, except for uh, small heidel hernias.
0: Okay. So for larger heidel hernias, do you then, do you separate the procedures or are you kind of doing a wrap now? I'm,
1: um, but for the larger hiatal hernias, I'm doing a wrap. Um, for those medium size, I'll offer patients a links.
0: Okay, links. Okay, great. Well, I didn't know you did links. Uh, so yeah, we'll definitely talk about that because I, I do not have experience with links. I mean, I know about it, I've read about it, uh, but I've never done one. And that As a matter of fact, I don't think I've even seen one. So um, yeah, that'll that'll be good. So okay, so so then the TIF is so you break it down by size of hernia then. Large right. hiatal hernias get the the more traditional approach, and right. so your thinking is, I'm, I'm going to guess that you're kind of thinking that the bulky wrap also kind of helps with the recurrence rate. Is am I or is, am I thinking about that th- different?
1: Well, no, you're you're correct, but um, my opinion is it's the it, the it probably is about the bulk of the wrap also, mm-hmm. um, but you know the. Current question in terms of reflux that I don't have an answer for that, uh, and I don't know that anybody does is, is the diaphragm really a barrier to herniation of the stomach? And because the patients developed this hiatal hernia to begin with. So the the diaphragm as a barrier is already defective. Mm -hmm. And even though we close the hiatus are we really adequately recreating a barrier?
0: Okay. So then you cite like various high recurrence rate studies that have been out there of somewhere at some, right. as high as 20 or 30% even. Right. Okay. Uh, that's a good point. And so then in thinking, so, uh, so when you do your higher heart, do you use mesh or no?
1: I don't use mesh. And uh, uh, again, because the literature really doesn't support mesh as a, a long-term uh, solution uh, I I think the uh, heard a discussion past couple of weeks maybe short term mm-hmm. uh, within the first six months but long term it, it doesn't offer any change in the recurrence rate so my thought is with the the large parasophageal hernias I'm starting to do some kind of gastropexy
0: right Right. So that's, okay. So do you get the wrap, then you literally are sewing the diaphragm over to the, to the stomach or, well, right. stomach to diaphragm more accurately. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah I, okay. I get that. And so then, so then on the medium ones, you're fixing the hernia and then doing the links.
1: Right. And, and that's a, a patient choice. Mm-hmm. And uh, I give them the option between the links or a Nissen and uh, the, I'll, I'll do what the patient thinks is best for them in that case.
0: So after you, after you talk to the patient, do you think most patients choose links or they choose Heidels? I mean, I'm sorry, uh, Nissin's.
1: And um, you know, it, it, I'd almost say it's a toss up and I, I couldn't give you the numbers, but I have plenty of patients that they just don't like the idea of a metal implant. Yeah. And so they'll, they'll choose the Nissen, not for any other reason. They just don't want the implant.
0: Sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, and we see that with mesh, too. I mean, I've answered so many questions about mesh uh, and you're not going to put that mesh that's on TV uh, and all that stuff. Uh, so, yeah, for, foreign bodies in the body are becoming a little more patient sensitive uh, and you really kind of have to talk uh, talk through that i mean i think in some scenarios where you do have a choice yeah you can make a different choice but like for example inguinal hernia i mean that literature's sailed and uh, there's no question that putting mesh in is the standard of care but you still have to explain it because people don't like the foreign body so i get that and then well, the small ones you'll do the TIF. Uh,
1: yeah and so my current thinking and still this the uh, my thought is an evolution here, or my opinion is. Sure. But for over the past couple of years, my approach with the TIF has been, I'll use the TIF if I don't have to fix the hiatal hernia, because that's where the the advantages of the TIF all fall into place.
0: Right. Well, and I mean to be to your point that. Uh, that is where the data technically is, right? We right. don't necessarily have great data yet on heidel hernia plus uh, TIF and at the same setting. And so, yeah, when you look at the, the data that um, about TIF, which is evolving and getting uh, in some – yeah, well, it's getting better uh, in terms of the quality of the data and whatnot. When we first started doing these, the quality of the data was – Not super great. I mean, there was, you know, a pretty decent sized study that said, you know, sort of 78 to 80%, uh, you know, that are off their daily PPIs. And that was kind of the end point. There really wasn't, um, you know, pH probe studies. There weren't other more objective factors. Um, but sort of people that did them, they felt that their clinical results sort of match that. But at the same time, interesting that, uh, over the years, kind of, kind of change your philosophy. And, you know, I'd have to be honest, I, I've changed mine a little bit too. I'm, I'm still very pro-TIF, but I, for example, um, with that patient with a large hiatal hernia where, uh, or more parasophageal, like a type three hiatal hernia. Um, I kind of think of that more as usually they're, Reflux is not really the symptom they come to you with. It's going to be pain, it's going to be dysphagia, it's going to be bloating, and they don't often have true reflux. Uh, or at least they don't that's not what they're telling you about. They may say it have it here and there, but not like as they're I'm coming in because I can't swallow, I'm coming in because I can't eat, I'm bloated, I have pain, blah, blah blah. And um, you know, and that kind of makes sense because a true type 3, the GE junction should still be below the diaphragm. So I guess that kind of makes sense. But on those, I'll repair the hernia only. I use mesh. <laughs> Um, yes. and then, uh, and then that's it. And then we see how they do. And then if they have reflux later, then I will go ahead and repair that with a TIFF. Like I'll, I'll take care of the reflux with a TIF down the road. And to be honest sure. and, with you.
1: And that's a reasonable approach.
0: Yeah. yeah. As, as I've done probably t- maybe 20 or 30 patients like that, I think I've gone back and done the TIFF like once. Um, yeah. it, yeah, because because again, their symptoms really aren't reflux. They're just glad they can eat. So you know things do evolve. Because I I would have tipped them, but that but that's just based on dogma, right? When we trained, you know, we always did whenever you did even a large parasophageal, you always did a rep. But and the reason why was only because going back and trying to do a rep afterwards was damn near impossible. I mean you just you can't do I mean it's it's dangerous to be in the the GE junction area uh on a redo. I mean I do redo surgery but I mean it's always very sphincter tightening and and uh lots of it's, lost sleep It's before. not
1: a pleasant surgery to do. No.
0: No. So that's the only reason we did wraps no matter what to, at the from then. So, you know, cuz manometry data on a parasophageal hernia is not great. You have no idea what the esophagus is doing. So you just did a very very loose wrap and you know, kind of crossed your fingers. But now separating them I, I kind of like it because that is an advantage that TIFF offers, but I mean, again, there's lots of different ways to skin this cat. You know, the idea of sort of pexing it to the, the, the diaphragm also is, is pretty attractive too. So talk to me about links. I'm, I'm interested about links because, um, I've really thought about it more here lately. I know being more of a TIF guy and being kind of early in the TIFF experience and having a lot of TIFs under my belt, um, obviously I'm somewhat biased against that, but at the same time, I get here in Dallas, a fair number of post sleeve patients that have reflux, you know, and that increased gastric pressure and whoever did their surgery, maybe Either didn't repair it well or missed a hiatal hernia or missed their symptoms beforehand or they developed it later. And so that's very difficult to deal with because you're kind of out of options. You don't have any stomach to wrap with. So there's no missing. Um, I've I've been able to successfully tiff one sleeve once. um, And that was... a little bit challenging, but you know we got it done, and she had a great result. Um, but that's you've and
1: done I've, one more than I have.
0: Yeah, well, and, I, and I've attempted six, so 16% uh, success rate not great. Um, but um, anyway, so so that's potentially an option in the right patient, and if the device ever got smaller. Um, but I've really thought, you know, gosh, I could be offering these patients a lynx. Um, and I've even reached out to the company and I think, you know, it's kind of like trying to be a, a Democrat reaching across to a Republican or vice versa. It's just, I'm, I'm persona non grata. So, uh, maybe they just will talk to me or maybe I haven't pushed hard enough. So tell me about your experience with links. I mean, when did you started doing them and, and how's it been going? Uh,
1: experience with links has been good. And, uh, I've been doing links for four or five years now.
0: Okay. And Over.
1: So, I have uh, still have quite a few links under my belt, but not not quite as many uh, links as I've done TIF.
0: Sure, but the learning. I'm, I'm, well, I'm assuming. So, take me through the procedure. Basically, you you get in there and you sort of dissect out the GE junction, right? Right. Oh. And then the the device gets placed right at the GE junction, or am I wrong about that?
1: No, you're correct.
0: Okay, and then. Uh, and then it's sutured in place, or do you do you fold up around it, or?
1: The, the, one of the most challenging parts of the procedure is it has a metal clasp that has two uh, um, actions to it. Mm-hmm. So first of all, laparoscopically, you've got to get the ends of the magnet together. And then once the magnets together, you've got to get it to clamp down on itself.
0: Got it, got it. So you gotta get to line up and then clamp. Yeah. Got
1: it. And then once it clamps down, you, you can't pull it apart.
0: Okay. And then how does it stay at the GE junction without migrating? Uh, it,
1: it, you put it between the posterior branch of the vagus okay. and the esophageal fibers. So uh, right before you put the links in, you just dissect out a little window. And uh, the description is before the, the first gastric branch. And so you... you put the links uh, through that area. And that's supposed to hold it in place until it's encapsulated.
0: Okay. Okay. Have you had any problems with migration or?
1: No, not really. Okay. Uh, But if, if I can't find the Vegas and a couple of times I've, I've done a redo procedure uh, maybe take down a Nissan and then put the links on Um, if I can't adequately find that space, uh, between the vagus and the esophagus, then I'll just put a stitch, one stitch uh, across the links to sure. act in the same way.
0: Yeah, 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 that makes sense. Okay, and so then um, after surgery, then the do they have to modify their diet?
1: I start them off on a, a soft diet. Mm-hmm. and uh, send them home from the hospital on a soft diet uh, what was interesting and, and fascinating to me in, in learning about th- this anti reflux procedure is the, it's recommended that the patients start eating right away in fact um, we tell people to eat a bite of food every two hours while they're awake oh, wow. and in short, it's physical therapy so that the links doesn't scar down and and causes worse dysphagia.
0: Oh, I get it. I get it. So to a certain degree, they have to exercise it or you can literally like physical therapy with a knee because if you don't exercise. It's it's
1: exactly the same concept.
0: So the frozen shoulder versus. Yeah. Okay. Dysphagia. Okay. So on patients to follow that, then I'm guessing dysphagia is not a huge problem.
1: Not really. And uh, there it's common that about two weeks in, uh, the, the patients will start experiencing dysphagia, and it's all over the map, from mild and barely noticeable to fairly significant.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But everybody seems to get through it by six weeks to three months after surgery.
0: Got it, got it. And so then, so, but you couldn't dilate it. So if someone truly had ongoing, you would have to explant
1: uh, no, um, statistically, about 10% of the patients uh, get a dilation. Okay. And, and so there's a protocol to, to essentially you do the dilation under fluoro and just want to make sure that you watch half the beads separate uh, under fluoroscopy.
0: Okay. And that just breaks up the scar tissue and then...
1: Yeah. The, the You're just... Exactly, trying to stretch and break up the capsule of scar that's around the implant.
0: Have you seen endoflip? I have not. You got to see it. <laughs> um, because this would the, actually.
1: The sales guy keeps sending me emails, but uh, I, I've never seen the endoflip in action.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I looked at it for the first time today, actually, literally. Uh, we did two of them. And. So one patient actually needed a dilation, so now she just had a bit of a stricture. And so it's uh, just this color manometry that you can just see for the distal portion of the esophagus, and you can see the tight spot. Like, literally, there's two parts of the graph. There's kind of this rolling thing, and then there's literally, it just comes down and then pinches right where it's at. And you can see what the pressures are and you can see, uh, kind of what the distensibility of that area is, which higher distensibility means kind of more normal and then lower mm-hmm. means strictured. And then, and then they have in, in accompanying with that, then, uh, the patient needed to be dilated. And I literally just put the, uh, the balloon down and it's the same device. And so rather than, you know, usually with dilations, you kind of blow up the balloon to a certain pressure and you just kind of guess. You and know. hope that that's enough. Right. So this, you can actually see the size of the esophagus change. It measures it based on this balloon and you see it on a graph and you can kind of see what's happening live. Uh, I mean, amazing, especially for dilations. I mean, I was I was it was amazing. And this lady, we got the best dilation. I mean, I, I've ever gotten. And so that was really cool. Um, so yeah, if, if you're doing dilations on any kind of regular basis, that's something to look at because it's all automatic, right? You go to 20 then you go to 30 CCs and then 40. Um, and then the pressure, you, you can kind of see what the volumes are doing. You can see what your thighs of your esophagus is doing and you can see what's happening, uh, right there on a, in sort of a graph. And, and if you had floral with that, uh, then you can kind of see the result too. So anyway, just just a thought. If you're if you're thinking about that, I don't work for the company that makes EndoFlip, but uh, I find it pretty useful. Um, and then at the same time, it's the same company. They do the Bravo, and then you can flip a Bravo in there too. So I've changed my workup. Uh, used to be I just got kind of got upper GI's on everyone. Did stuff pretty simply, um, and I like that because it was just one test and patients didn't get fatigued. And now I'm kind of just doing that um, because you can get a you get the Bravo pH probe, you get an EGD, and you get a, a you know. I wouldn't even say a poor man's manometry, manometry but like a, a distal manometry, if you will. Uh, and uh, it's pretty nice. So anyway, because Dr. Idy yeah. turned me on to that. Um, and I was like, hmm, I need to take a look at this. And then a couple of the other guys at one of the hospitals I work at wanted one of the, some of the bariatric guys, they wanted it for their stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I was impressed. So, but anyway, so getting back to links. Um, so then once they get through that, so roughly 10% get dilated, which is an easy procedure. I mean, that's, and if you tell I'm assuming you're kind of telling them that up front. Yes. Yeah, that's pretty. Yeah,
1: yeah I, the, the, That's one of my uh, parts of my pre-op conversation is let them know 10% of the time you'll need a dilation. And they, they seem to accept it if, if they know what to expect.
0: Well, and to bring that point home, this is something we've talked about on the show many times. I've done uh, guests and interviews just like you, and then I've kind of gone on rants, which I enjoy too. Uh, (laughs) And uh, talking with the patient beforehand is such a key part of any procedure, but particularly elective procedure where the expectations might actually be even higher. Um, You really have to make sure that you're setting their expectations and so that any sort of surprises are sort of expected so any anything that might could happen should be talked about and so again talking with your patients setting those expectations is such a key part of having the patient experience go well and then that improves everything cool. else about either the word of mouth stuff, you know, the Google ad, I mean not the Google ad, the Google review stuff that we kind of all are fighting these days. Um, so that's my best advice about that is making sure your expectations are clear beforehand. Good and bad.
1: Yeah. Couldn't agree more.
0: Yep. Uh, and I think sometimes we forget that it's really easy to forget that when you get busy, um, you know, Hey, gallbladder. Bye. See ya. <laughs> um, so you got to set that, set that down. Um, well, that's cool. Um, yeah, I, I, like I said, I've been meaning to really talk about it cause I probably get one or two a month of like a post operative sleeve that's got reflux and they're difficult to manage. I mean, you can fix that or hernia. If you do a good hiatal hernia repair, you can get some of them at least better, not necessarily super well controlled, Uh, But at least better, maybe they're better on their meds or something like that. But the high pressure of the the sleeve gastrectomy patient is just, it's difficult to overcome. And then if they have a hiatal hernia, they're going to get severe reflux. And so uh,
1: and if if you follow the discussion in in the, you know, the reflux community, um, that's right now the, the point that, you know, there's a paper in the works and we, we expect the data anytime now, but that's exactly the idea people are tossing around is uh, using the links uh, after a sleeve. Oh, yeah. And I've, I've, I've tried it one time. Uh, unfortunately it didn't work, but uh, again, I think that goes to patient selection.
0: Another key point. <laughs>
1: yeah. but, but in this person um, I think she had a foreshortened esophagus. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I went through the steps, fixed a heidel hernia, put the links on. Uh, within months, the links was above the diaphragm, and so it, it wasn't effective. Did so, that, eventually,
0: yeah,
1: took it out and did a really snug heidel hernia repair uh where it, wherever the stomach rested in other words i didn't try to to get the ge junction down below the diaphragm i just let the stomach uh, rest where it was going to <laughs> and repaired the asof- or repaired the diaphragm around it she did well post-op
0: so okay, so what you're so describing there's is she- my
1: series of one.
0: No, no, but like you know, what you're describing is in some ways because they already had a sleeve, a bit of a gastroplasty, right? Like because like the colleague's gastroplasty is not unlike a you know a, a sleeve for the cardia only right of the stomach uh for the lay person listening the cardi of the stomach is the top part right as it joins the esophagus um but uh so you basically had a pre-existing colleague's gastroplasty right right and then why wouldn't that work right okay i like it i like it a lot actually See, these are things in, in general surgery, because there's there's data, there's art, um, there's dogma, and uh, it's kind of the triangle of uh, you're trying to balance them. And, and sometimes dogma is correct, and it's there for a reason, and sometimes we learn that it's actually just you know hullabaloo. And then there's data, and data is usually pretty good at guiding you. Uh, and then there's sort of the art and art is sometimes all we have when you wind up in more difficult situations like which you just described, cause that's not common. I mean, if you fix the hiatal hernia and do a, a anti-reflux procedure, that's well recognized and FDA approved, that should go pretty well. But in, in this yeah. case it, it didn't. Uh, and so then you gotta, then you gotta come up with something <laughs> and, uh, I, I liked your, I liked it a lot actually. It's funny cuz when I, w- I went out and I took a course that uh, Demester was teaching uh Tom Demester out in California mm-hmm. and um, yeah he talks about that he did uh, he does gastroplasties routinely I mean relatively commonly now granted this is like 8 10 years ago I don't I'm not sure what he's doing now um, but he found that he he saw a lot of foreshortened esophaguses and uh, it was interesting because I I've, I've always kind of been looking for them and I, I got to be honest with you without sort of some sort of chest disease causing it. I don't see that very often. I'm usually able to get the esophagus down without much issue. And, I, you know, I, at first I thought, well, maybe I just haven't done enough. But now having done, you know, 400 in the last 10 years, I, I kind of feel like I should have seen one by now. And I, I can't Well, say that
1: I, I'm with you. It, it's kind of like, uh, you know, the meme about quicksand. The, the kids thought quicksand was going to be one of the dangers of, of life that they'd have to face. Yeah. And, and, whoever runs into quicksand it's the the foreshortened esophagus in, in my practice it's like you i'm i'm almost terrified of running into it and i haven't seen it that much yeah you know maybe two or three patients
0: interesting yeah. Cool. I, yeah, I loved, uh, I love this podcast for me because number one, it's just a fun thing for me to do. Uh, kind of came out of the, the COVID situation because, uh, I had more time on my hands and so I needed something to do. And this is sort of my outlet. And then it's a creative outlet and I've always liked AV stuff anyway. So this is, this is what I do to, uh, to keep myself interested. And now that we're getting busy again, now it's kind of like, Oh, it's hard to find time, but, uh, you got to make the time so that, uh, that you're happy. So anyway, um, I uh, lost my train of thought, but we'll come back. Um, what was I saying?
1: So, Will, I have a question for you. How, how is uh, your practice in, in terms of COVID? Are, are y'all shut down? Are you, no. are you operating full speed? What?
0: So we shut down oh. for, I believe we were shut down for elective cases for a month. Yeah. Maybe it was six weeks. And basically at that time, which is kind of just after spring break in March until probably the end of April. So I think it was about six weeks. We could not do anything elective. And so elective had that was the gray area. Right. Because what's elective and what's not. So the gallbladder that was pretty darn symptomatic, we felt comfortable putting on. Because the standard that our hospitals were setting is that if you expect that they're going to come to the ER in the next month, then that's okay to do. So, for example, incarcerated hernias, we would do uh, gallbladders, we would do uh, coming out of clinic anyway. Um, The problem was, much like other diseases as well, because, you know, uh, heart attacks or untreated heart attacks are higher. Uh, You know, lots of untreated diseases are higher because people didn't seek medical care during that time. Um, And as a matter of fact, the amount of excess deaths in the country is up, although I don't remember the number. Uh, Excess deaths, meaning people that weren't expected to die based on uh, previous data. So. Yeah, so we were shut down for about six six weeks. And then then the problem happened is, yeah, we're opened up, but no one really wanted to come in to see the doctor. Everyone was still very much in the fear. And we didn't know as much as at least we know now. And so we were doing a lot of televisits. And televisits for general surgery are tough. We, we struggled. Um, certain things made sense. You know, gallbladder patients with gallstones on an ultrasound, we could at least kind of say, okay, well, I can still examine your day of surgery, but you've got gallstones, you're telling me you have pain. And so we felt relatively comfortable with that or a hernia patient that had a CAT scan that showed the hernia, you know, things like that were relatively easy, but a lipoma, for example, (laughs) I mean, unless you can see it. And then, I mean, then how do you do televisit for hemorrhoids? I mean, you know, the, just yeah, not, yeah, not super practical. I actually, it's, it's really funny. I have a PA, which has been an absolute lifesaver for me. And she was seen she sees the post-op patients, right? Uh, and that's that's really, really convenient. And so she's seeing the post-op patient. I walk in on her one day to ask her a question. And on the screen is this dude kind of starting to pull his his pants down to show her, show her one of the port incisions uh, that we have made. And so, <laughs> and, you know, in another circumstance, I'm like, what are you watching? And <laughs> it's just... I'm just like, okay. And some people just do that. Right. And I'll be like, oh, okay. So you've got this little lump you're worried about. Yeah. And there you go. And now you're, now you're looking at stuff you weren't expecting to look at, at least on the screen. Uh, so it's, it's a different environment. And then sort of, uh, internet or video etiquette, I think is an interesting concept because people are used to doing the FaceTime and whatnot. Uh, at, you know, with their friends. And so, you know, I, I've done televisits with the lady getting Chick-fil-A at the, at the drive through uh, for a post-op visit. And then another one we had, uh, she was like walking through her house with her iPhone. And I mean, it got to the point, I've got, she got a big screen at work. And so, I mean, I was like, ma'am, I apologize. I need you to sit down. I can I'm getting dizzy. I mean, it was really, it was, it was that bad. I mean, she, cause she was just walking through the house all over the place and I was just like, Oh my God, I'm getting so dizzy. So yeah. So that's been interesting. Did y'all do televisits or no?
1: No. Um, we were set up for them. And uh, in fact, my office manager brought me a, a laptop and said, here, this is so you can do virtual visits. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have a patient that wanted to do that. Wow. Um, a handful of telephone visits okay. uh, for an uncomplicated post-op visit. Sure. Uh, not much virtual or telemedicine at all.
0: Wow. So did y'all ever get shut down or no?
1: We did. Uh, about the same uh, when was this back in mid-March and April yeah. but when the gov- when the governor said the state was shut down, you know, the, uh, that affected everyone. Um, and, and I kind of followed the same guidelines that you mentioned. If I thought a patient was symptomatic and was going to end up in the ER, then that's not an elective surgery. Right. And so. And
0: they, uh, oh, and they let us do cancer surgeries and biopsies and such too.
1: Yeah. And, and so, I never, I never stayed home from a day of work. Now the work day got much shorter, but there was never a day I stayed home.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, me too. Uh, we had talked about it, like we were, we had meetings about it, because we've got uh, I've got two partners, uh, well, technically one partner and a junior associate or whatever, but three three docs, and we were sort of meeting about like what to do, and uh, it was very much like okay, well, if this actually does get bad, like they were kind of sort of predicting in the very very beginning, we even talked about like okay, one person would round one day and the other two would stay home, and you know we we'd, we'd kind of rotate through. Uh, trying to at least minimize exposure but of course you know that, that didn't really become necessary uh, at that point and then you know then as we've learned about it and I know you know it is a, unfortunately I think a politically charged issue at this point um, I, I think it's a serious disease and I think it does affect people uh, and is dangerous uh, particularly obviously for the elderly um, but as we learn as we learn you know the for the young it's you know you know, less dangerous than the flu in some cases in some age groups. Uh, under the age of three, it's actually, I think there's only been three under the three year olds that have died uh, yeah. out of all the 220,000 or whatever it is now. So, yeah, you know, we, uh, so I think knowing what we know now, I think things might have done a little bit differently. But, you know, I think shutting down was the right thing at the time because we were no one knew. Uh, and so yeah, that's where we are, but it got scary for a little bit because there was kind of a, the Texas medical board sent out a, a thing that kind of made it seem like if they felt there was, there was a, there was language that made it seem like you could lose your license if you were right. doing cases that they deemed inappropriate if someone complained or, or whatnot. And it wasn't clear how they were going to enforce that. And there weren't necessarily rules, but there was some scary language in some of those, uh, emails. Well,
1: yeah. And, and that release uh, also said uh, that the, the physician or, or their licensees are required to report inappropriate operations.
0: Oh yeah, 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 it did. Yeah. So yeah, that, that got like, uh, so we really did, I mean, I was pretty, I would say I followed that pretty much to the letter. Like I did not, like I look back, I don't think I did anything that I would even remotely think crossed or came close to the line. Yeah. Um but you know, I know other people did stuff that you know that maybe didn't. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, so fortunately we're 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 back now, but honestly, it's taken till probably just maybe late last month for us to get back to close to full volume. I think we're probably at like 95% now. Okay. Uh
1: but, but I'm I'm glad you're getting back. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I did get to spend a lot of time with the family. I got the podcast going. And uh, so I did have some things to do. Um, and fortunately we, we live in a market where when we're at hundred uh, percent, sometimes you feel like you can't breathe anyway. So a little slowdown is not terrible. Um, so uh, we're lucky in that regard. It's good to be busy. So that that's good. So how far, how long did it take you to get back?
1: Well, th- not long at all. Um, when the again, the governor opened up the, the state and said, okay, you can resume doing elective surgeries. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a, a backlog that it probably took us a month to work through. And, uh, so we got up, up to full speed pretty well, but also at the same time, I, I was the only general full-time general surgeon, uh, here in town. So uh, I had plenty of people waiting, you know, to, sure. That they had put things off and they were ready to come see me
0: so talking about that with regard to plainview being 22 25,000 uh how, how hard have y'all been hit
1: uh, pretty hard oh, yeah. and in fact the right now uh, lubbock and and plainview maybe not as much as amarillo because they got hit hard Uh, at the beginning but uh, we're hitting around that 15 percent capacity mark that the state says if you're at that capacity for seven days then you're going back into lockdown oh wow and so so, uh management around here and some of my colleagues are are worried that we're approaching that mark
0: now do you think that's because i mean well, maybe I'm wrong about this, but my experience, having lived in small towns, is that tends to shift slightly older than a metropolitan area or a yeah. larger metropolitan area. Is that am I accurate or am I way off?
1: Uh, no, no, I, I think that's accurate. Um, it, and so it it's hard for me to say because it's not obvious um, why we're. We're having such a surge. Hmm. I tend to think maybe people just don't take it seriously. And, you know, this concept of keep your distance and wear a mask. um, Either people haven't heard the message or maybe they don't believe it.
0: It, it is interesting. I, the last time I looked at it, and I, I'll, I'll confess I have not looked at it uh, right away, uh, recent uh, last week. But in terms of the death rate, seemed to be going down versus while well, the cases were kind of creeping up. And I don't know if that's changing or not. Um, but it seems like you know we're getting better at kind of managing it and, and supporting it. Um, and then as younger people get it, you know they have more of a symptomatic to asymptomatic course. Where yeah, they're positive, it counts as a case. You know, but so I, I think people are seeing a lot of that of like, oh, so-and-so had COVID and he just kind of stayed home for three days and whatever. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there is a bit of a relaxation and uh, I think only time will tell whether that's okay or not. <laughs> uh, that's the unfortunate part. You just don't know. Um and that, that, I think that was really the scary part in the beginning uh, we are we're seeing we have seen a few more cases here too I just I got it from my partner a second ago and uh, yeah I guess our hospital now has like 11 active cases um, at one of the hospitals I work at and that's about capacity in terms of the ICU but I don't think they're all in the ICU and that's the other thing the ICU admissions are down too they're, they're kind of just getting oxygen on the floor and stuff like that. Mm. So I don't know. Uh, we'll, we'll see. We, we don't all have access to the healthcare that the uh, the president has. So <laughs> uh, a little bit well, different.
1: Unfortunately, right.
0: Yeah. So so kind of talking. We've talked about some reflux on when uh, we've talked to COVID, uh, which actually the first time we've talked about. I've actually avoided talk avoided talking about that, but that's fine. I've, I've been meaning to. Um, in terms of small town practice versus large town practice. I know for a while you actually did practice in Lubbock, which I'm not gonna try and sell that as a large town, but it is literally, if my math is correct, about nine times the size of Plainview. Uh, Lubbock's about 186 to 200,000, at least last time I checked. Um, And so what are the differences? What are the advantages, disadvantages that you've seen? Uh, The
1: Boy, where do I start? Yeah, um, You know. Well, what's the, what's the
0: best thing about practicing in a small town? Let's go there.
1: I think the the best thing about practicing in a small town is I don't have to compete with the gastroenterologist. Okay. Um, because right. in, in a small town, right. we don't have GI. Right. And so I do all my own scopes. And... That uh, really was the springboard for me becoming interested in uh, doing anti-reflux surgery because I'd see the people who come in for heartburn, and I do the initial evaluation, I do the scope, and then that progressed to where I can now do the entire workup, review my own workup, and recommend surgery.
0: Right. Um, so yeah, that's, that's tremendous. Uh, I'm lucky in that there's a hospital I go to where for whatever reason, GI doesn't want to go there. Uh, yeah. and so, uh, I have a little bit of a bubble that I can go to, to have some of that experience, not all yeah. of it, but some of it. Um, okay. And then what was better about practicing in a larger town or what was the best thing?
1: Well, the, we, uh, how do I phrase this? Uh, with and I think any surgeon would know, but how do I phrase it so the the, the general public would understand? You get the the surgical referrals come to you prepackaged, mm-hmm. and so not all the time, yeah. but but a lot of time they've they've been through the workup and not necessarily reflux because that that's a, a Kind of a different animal that yeah. not even every gastroenterologist understands the workup. But example for gallstones, um, you know, I, I don't have to order the ultrasound or order the HIDA scan or tell the patient, you know, maybe we should do an EGD before we jump on taking out your gallbladder. The patients have been through that workup; they come to me because they're ready for surgery, and. So, mentally, uh, it's a lot more convenient.
0: Sure. Yeah, yeah, that makes yeah, sense. That makes, um, interesting, though. Uh, so. Some. <laughs> so, the, the plus and minus of that is also then you don't get clouded because I've definitely had patients that refer to me for gallbladder uh, that when you talk to them aren't gallbladder. <laughs> Right. And so they come to you with an ultrasound that showed a, uh, you know, that it might be sort of kind of thickened on the CT scan or something like that. And they never even got an ultrasound. Uh, yes. and so then you're kind of going, all right, where's your pain? And they go, well, it's here. And you know, yeah. And then you recommend a different type of study to try to figure out what's going on, or at least hide a scan to scan, you know, plus or minus it. And, uh, yeah, then they get mad because uh, you did something different. So the, the big town stuff has a deal back. I don't remember if I told you this, but back in when I first started practice, I actually practiced in a town of about twenty thousand uh so I was actually in North Platte nebraska so i I know a well, little I
1: don't remember we talked about that
0: yeah, 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 so I did a little bit of this, and I kind of going um it had a pretty decent medical community, and there was actually there was three and a half surgeons. One that was kind of on his way to retirement. Really nice guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, uh, it was interesting because while Plainview has medical communities very nearby ish, because Plainview is 60 miles north of Lubbock. Is that right? About an 50, hour? 50, 45 to 50. Yeah. So it, assuming a patient didn't want to see a, a, a doctor in Plainview, the drive to Lubbock is not terrible. Like right. my commute to work is about 35 minutes. And so you're describing about the same distance or same time rather. Right. Uh, and so when, um, going back to, um, you know, the, the, the North glad thing, we actually came from a, like, there was no one around us. Denver was 350 miles away. Uh, Lincoln was about 360 uh, and Omaha was you know, 390 or whatever it was, however those far apart and so we were it, so we were actually the hub, so it actually supported more like 100,000 right, because mm-hmm. up to Valentine down to, so there's a much larger, McCook even uh, so a much larger catchment area geographically and then sort of population too so it was a little bit different in terms of, uh, I, you couldn't be the sole surgeon, you, you could not be able to breathe it would be impossible, but I think for me, the biggest advantage of practicing in the small town is, and I would also say in some ways is the biggest negative, too, was just the camaraderie of the patients um, for good and for bad. Um, right. Uh, you know, seeing some of your patients at the Walmart is tremendously rewarding and tremendously invasive (laughs) Uh, and so and you know my memory is very very good for like faces but not always for names and I always got into like this awkward thing of like hello, you, uh, you know, and then generally, if you point to their belly, they're going to tell you how things go. But, uh, yeah, so I I found myself in some awkward situations like that. And then sort of, I always felt like I was under the microscope was my big problem is, you know, if you go out to eat and and wanted to have a drink, for example, I kind of felt like people were watching and maybe that was perceived more than reality, but yeah, that was something I, I didn't enjoy. Um, but I did enjoy, kind of seeing the patients and I enjoyed sort of the community that you don't necessarily get here in Dallas. I mean, that's something that, you know, I've got neighbors around and, you know, we wave, we do stuff, but there's no, you know, cause there's lots of other things to do. Whereas in a small town, there's not a whole lot to do. So friends get together and they have, you know, backyard parties, garage parties, whatever. And so I, I do. Kind well,
1: of that you're sometimes. right. I, I learned early on that uh, the, the biggest form of entertainment in a, a small town is some kind of community get together, Sure, uh, a, a party, a banquet, yeah. uh, a cookout, you name it. There, there's always something happening. And yeah, I'm, I've gotten used to it, but I part of me really craves anonymity. I just want to be able yeah. to, to go to town and people not know who I am. I can go into a a community event, a a banquet, or or some kind of uh, get-together. I can spot five people as soon as I walk in the door that I've operated on.
0: Right. Yeah. 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 Especially when you're the only surgeon in town. Um, yeah. And I remember that, uh, at the time when I started, I had this little convertible and, uh, it wasn't really that much. It was kind of the base model. Um, but I mean, it might as well have been a Ferrari. It might as well have been a Ferrari. I mean, people asked all the time, you know, is my operation paying for that car? Blah, blah, blah. You know, you know, that's right. And it's just like, you know, it's just a little, you know, whatever. I think it, it was a BMW Z4, but when they first came out and it was the base model, I think it, it was not that expensive. I mean, it wasn't a cheap car either, but it wasn't ridiculous. And the funny but it
1: th- wasn't a beat up pickup.
0: No. So the funny thing is I ended up trading it in, uh, right around the time my daughter was born. So that's 15 years ago, but, uh, I traded in on a crew cab, uh, Chevy 1500 and, uh, literally cost about. 10 grand more than the little BMW, no one said a word, just nice truck.
1: Exactly.
0: (laughs) And it it cracked me up because I was like, really? Because this is like way more expensive, (laughs) but whatever. Uh, So yeah, that, that anonymity is a, a big, is a big deal. But at the same time, it can also be really rewarding because when you see those patients and they've had good results and, you know, you know, ego, stroking, if you will. Um, you know, we all need that a little bit, uh, you don't want to get well, consumed and, in it. But.
1: And sometimes i like to think that's made me a better surgeon because you, you realize that the, you know, when the person's uh, asleep on the table and, and you're doing the, doing what you do, you've got to do it right. The first time, right. um, no, one's going to bail you out. And if there's you know, a complication because you missed a, a detail, then you're going to have to face up to it. Uh, when you see the guy next time,
0: literally face to face so, up to it. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, that's so kinda...
1: I, I think it's made me more conscientious or, or made my OCD worse. You take your pick.
0: <laughs> yeah. The good and the bad. Yeah. I remember I actually did a, a colonoscopy for my attorney <laughs> uh-huh, right. <laughs> and uh, I was just like, well, can we just swap services here. Like, but yeah, so that was interesting. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so I just, I kind of had the same thought. I'm like, well, Hey, I, I never, I'm attorney attorneys. I always get a little nervous anyway. Uh, but then, uh, yeah, literally I'm going to, I had a meeting with her the next like week to talk about my will or whatever. Uh, <laughs> yeah. If something went wrong, a perforation or something, yeah, that'd be, that'd be kind of a challenge. you so-
1: have to postpone your meeting.
0: Yeah. So let me, let me ask you this though. So that's kind of the social aspect of it. And so the professional though, like what are the challenges? What's different in a small town that challenges you that like, you know, that vexes you, if you will, That to just the day to day, the grind, the, the butting heads with administration. Like, I mean, what is the big issue that might be different than a a larger community? Luckily
1: I, I don't have problems with administration. And uh, right now where we've got good administration and uh, I've, there's a, the a man who, who's our CEO has an attitude that I haven't heard from any other hospital management is that he realizes that the, the doctors uh, are the primary customers of the hospital in a way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even today at at lunch, he said, you know, I've been in this business for decades. I have never once admitted a patient to the hospital. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough.
1: And so, so I think I'm lucky there. Um, The, I think the biggest challenge is you have to, to be good at a, wide breadth of procedures uh, not just surgery and uh, sometimes uh, I, i'm i'm the problem solver and they the internist or the family docs call me and they expect me to have an answer and know what to do so you know at times i've been infectious disease i've been the endocrinologist and so it I tell people that would be interested in a small town, you've got to be able to stand on your own two feet. And because there's not a lot of consultants that you can lean on, and sometimes you're the guy that the other services are leaning on Mm -hmm. that expect answers.
0: Yeah, I don't miss that. I know exactly what you're talking about, and I don't miss Mm -hmm. it at all. Uh, I like being able to you know, uh, it's, as I've gotten older I've uh, you know compartmentalized a lot of my sort of practice if you will and so you know, I'm, you know and I think everyone does this to a certain degree but you know when I first got out I, I kind of you know I didn't like infectious disease managing my antibiotics I didn't like the, I didn't even like the critical care guys managing my vents and things like that just, you know and then as I've gotten older like I am more than happy to let them help me Uh, Oh, yeah. And that that has improved my life. But, again, with a small town, you don't necessarily have that option. Um,
1: And we do have a really good hospitalist service. Sure. And uh, so that's probably new for us. Oh, new, I say probably eight years or so. Mm -hmm. But uh, we've got hospitalists in-house and and mid-levels overnight. So they do manage the vent. So I, I don't get have to get called with abgs at 4 a.m sure. uh, after i spent three hours you know d- draining a, a abscess or, or something
0: now do you do you have any issue getting patients transferred when you need to or is that pretty easy to do for you
1: no it's not easy um and it seems to be a constant struggle. Uh, Right now, uh, the Lubbock hospitals, where where we primarily would transfer people, they're on diversion. So past couple of weeks, we're taking care of a lot of folks that we normally uh, would send away. Um, But with the hospitalists, it's been easier because you can have the hospitalist to hospitalist uh, transfer and that doesn't seem to run into as as much friction Mm. as say if, if I'm trying to transfer a patient to a vascular surgeon right and he's as tired and cranky as I am and he doesn't want to be bothered
0: yeah. Well, yeah, that, that doesn't change. I mean, we have the same issue. Cause I, you know, I practice North of Dallas, so I'm not in like the downtown. So yes, I have consultants and yes, I have backup and yes, I have pulmonary and critical care. But for example, I really don't have great access to a vascular surgeon. I really don't have yeah. great access to a surgical oncologist. I don't have, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and so, right. So we have to transfer downtown and then you you, know, you gotta make the phone call, you gotta justify. So I mean that stuff is still similar. Um, the nice thing, though, is, and I had this when I went to when I was in Nebraska, is. I don't have patients fighting me on it, right? If I feel like they need to transfer to the hospital 10 miles away, not a big deal. I remember in Nebraska, I would try and transfer someone and they'd be like, well, are you sure I can't just stay or, you know, or no, 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 I think you're good. And I, the, the story I remember vividly is I took care the one time I ever did this, I took care of a, a pyloric stenosis. Um, and I had been out of training for like eight months. And, you know, it came back. They got an ultrasound It actually showed it. Uh, The kid had classic symptoms. And I talked to the parents um, and I'm literally like, listen, I've done this like five times in residency. And I know a guy you're going to have to drive three hours, but he's like the best. He's the guy I trained with. He's amazing. He'll take great care of you. I've already called him. He's willing to take you, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, "Nah, we want you. And, you know, it's funny because now at age 48, I would literally just be like, you know what, I'm not I apologize. I'm not offering. Yes. <laughs> uh, I'm telling you, I'm not comfortable doing this. Um, but younger and being having maybe a little more brashness, a little more uh, confidence than sense. Uh, yeah, I went ahead and did it. And it was probably the scariest thing I've ever done in my entire life. Uh, that being said, the patient did fine. So there were, there were no issues. But <laughs> I won't we'll ever do that again, but yeah, they didn't, just didn't want to go. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. So anyways, that, that's interesting. So there's, there's definitely challenges. I think uh, people forget, you know, we get so used to practicing in our much larger bubble, you know, Dallas and then, and, and, and I can, you know, not that I have everyone right at my immediate disposal, but I've got pretty much anything you can possibly imagine. Uh, you know, I've sent patients down to the transplant center without issue, you know, and, and so, we have a lot of that. So that, that is nice. But at the same time, you know, there's, there's a, there's a community that you miss that we don't, that you get that we don't. And so, you know, for people out there that might be considering a more rural medicine tract or a a smaller town tract, uh, look into it. But when you do make sure you weigh all the pluses and minuses and talk to the people in town and talk to what the individual community is. Um, in the end, uh, this town, I could have stayed there, right? It wasn't the town that made me change and move to Dallas. It was because we had a newspaper at the time that was extremely physician unfriendly, and unfortunately, people in the town sort of knew that, but they, you know, they don't tell the new recruit that. And so, you know, it turned out that my partner ended up getting sued. And long story short, um, that all just ends up in the paper because there's nothing else to write about. And so then when you've been sued a couple times, uh, no one wants to come see you because they've read it in the paper. Whereas the anonymity that we have in Dallas, if someone else gets sued, you don't know about it unless it really becomes the level of the Texas Medical Board. And even then, that's only if you happen to read the bulletin in Dallas. I mean, you have to practically be, you know, the, the, the Dr. Death guy from the podcast to, to rise to the level of the community kind of understanding it. So... Anyway, uh, yeah. just some differences. Get, do your homework. Uh, one of my big complaints is that uh, as residents, no, I'm sorry, as med students, we make decisions about what the rest of our life is going to look like based on not great information. Don't make the same mistake for your residency. When you finish residency, you know, do your homework on the job. So that's my uh, my uh, soapbox for the tiny little minute. Uh, so, yeah. Good advice. Yeah. So, man, this has been awesome. It's good to see you again. I, I, uh, I missed... Those talks that we used to do—we used to do a like a conference. No, it wasn't even a conference. It was a um, like dinners we would do and there was yeah,
1: the, the journal club.
0: Yeah, journal club. There you go. That was a bit that's a much better word. Yep. So we would do a journal club and Dr. Idy who's been on the show before, uh Dr. Cummings and a couple of other people that actually not many of them do TIFs anymore. Um we'd all get together and we'd talk about TIF. we'd talk about our experience, we'd talk about the data, talk about the struggles, the successes, Well, and it was a good collegial sort of positive environment. I even got by one of my only papers ever out of it when we did that uh the, the study that Dr. Idy did. Um but, and then that was one part. And the other part was it helped the company and the company kind of helped sponsor it because then they would bring people that were interested in maybe doing TIFF and we'd have sort of these, uh, it wasn't really a dog and pony show, but at the same time, the the people that were interested in doing TIFF would at least hear the positive experience of people that were experienced in doing it. And so, you know, the idea was that they, they, you know, be able to get them to start doing TIFFs and, and obviously sell devices, but... I missed that because uh, uh, we did like almost like once a month, wasn't it? And it was like a lot. You know?
1: it, it it was at least once every six weeks. And yeah. uh, you're right. I I enjoyed it enough that uh, I, I made the effort, and it it's really not that bad. But I'd get on a plane, come down for dinner on Friday night, and head back to Lubbock on Saturday afternoon, and uh, b- because I, I got as much out of it, like you're saying.
0: No, oh, yeah. No, it was great. And, you know, we get so busy, we don't do stuff like that. So, uh, you know, it's like in residency, you know, you'd have m M&M every week. And depending on how malignant your program was, sometimes you learned a whole heck of a lot. And, that, you know, talking to the surgeons and even just this, and this is why I did the podcast. And this is coming back to what I originally, what I lost my train of thought earlier. That's why I like this so much is I get a chance to talk to someone like you, to Dr. Idy, to um, uh, Dr. Leeds, for example, who talked about how he managed, he's like the world's expert in esophage. Of fistula management, uh, cool. which is not something I ever want to be an expert in, um, but he does—you uh, know—endoluminal wound vacs for fistulas and closes them, you know, crazy stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I don't- yeah it it works he's got several papers out of it so if if you do have to ever have a fistula he's your guy um but yeah i I, I learn a lot from this i learn as much as i uh, as hopefully that i i teach but uh speaking
1: of these guys and uh, i i know our time's running out but uh, i wanted to circle back around are you a member of uh, american forget society
0: Uh, You know, I generally, uh, I'll admit to being a bit of a curmudgeon on this, I tend to not join many societies only because, at least my experience has been that uh, typically the overriding philosophy of the society usually is counterproductive to my philosophy. Uh, Like, for example, the ASBMS, right? Like I do some bariatric surgery, but I've never really been involved with the bariatric medicine side just because... um, you know, they really seem to push an agenda of that, you know, it's gotta be volume and you have to have all these volumes or else you're just not qualified to do that. And someone that's done as much foregut surgery as I have, I, I just find that to be ridiculous. And so uh, I tend not to, I didn't plan on slamming the ASBMS tonight, but anyway, there you go. Um, long story short is I, yeah, I tend to not do that just because of that, but it doesn't mean I'm not open to it. I just, I just haven't. And
1: Well, the, d- d- Take this as an endorsement for me, because uh, I think that that spirit of um, that you're talking about that we had with with those journal club dinners. I think this group, to an extent, is continuing that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've, when it was introduced to me, I jumped at the chance to be a part of it and uh, have really enjoyed their meetings. It's only two years old now, so the first meeting was in person. Uh, Second meeting was pretty much a a weekend-long Zoom meeting, but uh, still got a lot of good information.
0: American Forget Society? Yeah. The AFS. All right. Yeah, I will look them up. Yeah, that's something uh, I'm down for that. I wouldn't mind being on the ground floor, or maybe maybe they haven't formed opinions that they're counterproductive to myself. Um,
1: And and I, I would... When you look at it, um, you you can find their website real easy, but uh, I would recommend if you haven't heard this discussion by John Lippum out of USC about um, the, I guess it's titled the anti-reflux barrier. And I've heard him give this conversation a couple of times, but he talks about what's the role of the Heidel hernia repair, and the role of an anti-reflux procedure. And essentially he's making the, the case, you got to do both if you want to have success. And But he, he's an entertaining speaker and, and he put this talk together uh, so that it, it it's pretty entertaining. But I, I thought about it when you were talking about your approach to the parasophageal hernias. Uh-huh. And uh, you, you may, uh, I know you'd find this interesting. Now, whether you totally agree, you tell me. But it is an interesting talk. I'd recommend it.
0: I've uh, I've gotten actually more open-minded in my old age. So uh, we'll we'll see. I I I. I I'm more embrace of newer technologies than I used to be, actually, because I remember I do a ton of robotic surgery now. I literally do very little open unless it's just, you know, like abscesses and sort of straightforward yeah. stuff. I mean, I, I got to the point I even do my appendic- appendectomies robotically now. I know. Uh, And I, I, it it took me a while because, you know, when you can do literally a five or 10 minute appendectomy laparoscopically, I was like, well, why would I do the robot? Number one, when you get a robot team that's well-trained I'm adding 10 minutes now. So we're not talking about a tremendous amount of time. Um, And honestly uh, we did the math. It's cheaper. It's cheaper because I sew, right? So I literally do an old fashioned open appy robotically okay so, so i literally like basically i grasp the base of the appendix i mm-hmm. use electrocautery to go across the meso at like 80 right so i just <laughs> turn it way up to burn go across the meso appendix, get down to the base of the appendix then doubly tie it like you would open divide in between Dunk it with a Z, well cauterize the mucosa. Then I dunk it with yep. a Z stitch, whatever. And it turns out that that two oh silk is way less expensive than two or three loads uh, of an endovascular stap or an endo, uh, luminal staper. So yeah, uh, so.
1: and uh, an energy device to to go across the artery. Yeah.
0: Oh, well, but I'm using scissors anyway to do the dissection, so it's the same device.
1: Right, but uh, I, I hear what you're saying about it being cheaper. You're not, you're not opening that expensive equipment.
0: Right. Now, to be fair, by about 10 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> so we're not talking about a lot, but honestly, I, I find the procedure to be more elegant. And what I've learned is that hard gallbladders are easier to do robotically, right? Hard, hard gallbladders are easier to do robotically. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I've talked to a bunch of robotic surgeons and they all kind of once they get to that learning curve, they absolutely agree. And I, I was curious, are hard app is easier? And it turns out, yeah, they are. Um the dissections easier, it's easier to find, it's easier to dissect. Um, you know, when you get the appendix kind of stuck to the sidewall, getting that down can be a bit of a chore laparoscopically and with the robot it's like nothing. So anyway, uh we could do this uh, forever. I am out of town and I got a a wife that's tapping her heels, so
1: uh, well, yeah. And my supper just came home. Oh, perfect.
0: Yeah. Well, good. So we'll, we'll end it here. Uh, we can do this again sometime. Uh, I, I love doing this. Like I said, uh, I try to do it every week, but it's been, I've had a little bit of a hiatus when, as we've gotten a little bit busier. So finding guests is the other hard part. So I appreciate your time. And uh, yeah, thanks again, Dr. Cummings, everyone. Oh, um, yeah. Happy to be
1: here and enjoyed it.
0: Perfect. All right. Well, thanks, man. Uh, we'll see you next time.
1: All right. Have a good night.
0: Yeah, you too. So that was uh, Dr. Cummings. And uh, what a good discussion. He's a good guy. He, uh, Like I said, I've known him for a long time. We've, we've talked a number of times uh, and uh, been in various meetings together at the same time. So uh, I've always enjoyed talking with him. I thought he'd be a good guest, and boy, I was, I was right. So anyway, uh, as always, uh, this is uh, Dr. Chris, the surgery guy, where we talk about anything that may interest me. I appreciate you very much for joining. and. Uh, I want to give a shout out, as always, uh, to Approaching Nirvana for the intro and outro to the podcast. And we look forward to seeing you next time. We're going to try and get back to a weekly schedule, but uh, don't hold me to it.